Psalm 95. This is God's holy and inspired word. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would bless us now with a true hearing and heeding of your word. Father, may this word be an encouragement to us. May this word be a warning to us. And grant us, Father, not only listening ears, but a listening heart to hear, to receive humbly, to understand, to obey, and to do so joyfully for your glory and honor and for our own salvation, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Perhaps you've said this to someone. Perhaps you've heard this from someone. What's being said with the phrase, praise the Lord? It's an exclamation of joy. You hear good news and you say, Wow, praise the Lord for that. You wonder about how God could save you and have mercy on you. And and, and so there wells up from the innermost heart, in in your innermost being, uh, an exclamation. Praise the Lord. And when we find it in Scripture, it is not only an exclamation of thanks, a statement of thanksgiving and gratitude. It is a call to worship that is itself a praise to God. A lot of times I heard recently someone say, well, if you tell someone praise the Lord, that itself is not praising God. No, it is. It is praising God. It is praising God. It is a call to worship God that is itself a worship and a praise of God. 
we tell one another, let's praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But what happens when God Himself calls us with those words? Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Come into His presence with thanksgiving. Come and praise the Lord. This is not simply David telling us this. This is not simply a brother or a sister telling us to praise God. It is God Himself calling us to praise the Lord. And beloved people of God, when God issues the call to praise Him, what must we do except praise the Lord? And there is in this text, you see, an urgency and and a call to an immediacy in our praise of God. We cannot delay God's worship. We cannot postpone God's worship. We cannot say, well, there's 52 Sundays in the year. I'll, I'll, I'll go to most Sundays. I, most Sundays I'll go to worship, right? God is pleased with 51%. No, every week God calls you to worship Him. And more than this, God calls you every day to worship Him. God calls you every moment while you have your being, while you have breath, to praise the Lord. And so how shall we praise the Lord? What we find here is three simple points, and we're going to expand on the third point next week. But what we find here, it is that it's God who calls us to worship Him, first and foremost. It's God who calls us to worship Him from the heart. And who is this God, secondly? Well, He tells us who He is, that He is worthy of worship. He is our Creator and our Savior. And then thirdly, In verse 7 through 11, the end of the chapter, we find that we have to go and we have to praise God. We have to worship God with all that is in us, with joy, wholeheartedly. And we cannot, we cannot scorn, nor reject, nor refuse the word of God, the call of God to serve Him, to believe Him, to obey Him, to praise the Lord. So first of all, In verses 1 and 2, we find our calling. God calls us to worship Him. And you see, the call that God made onto your life, which to use theological parlance is called regeneration, the call of God, the internal call of God that transformed you, that changed your heart and your mind and brought a new nature into you away from the old nature according to Adam and according to sin, that call, you see, is replicated every Lord's Day. When at the beginning of our worship, God Himself calls us to worship Him. We would have no business coming to worship unless God Himself calls us to worship Him. You see, God calls us to worship Him means that worship is our calling. Worship is our vocation, to use that term. Vocation simply means, from the Latin, vocare, calling, what your calling is in life, right? We think of vocation as the thing I do nine to five, my career, 
I'm an accountant, I'm a plumber, I'm an um, athlete. No, truly, vocation is, the fundamental vocation that we have is none of those things. The fundamental vocation that we have is to be in Christ, to be a Christian who worships the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what we were made for. We were made for worship because we were made for God. God, you see, calls us because God is more desirable than anything here, than anyone here on earth. To worship God is our summum bonum, our greatest good. And so God calls us to worship him. But how? Verse 1 and 2 tells us, he calls us to sing his praises with joyful noise. What, what does that mean, joyful noise? Right? We oftentimes think you know, that means more cymbals, more cowbell, right? We need more cowbell. <clears throat> Not necessarily. What it means, though, is that we are to do so joyfully and loudly with gratitude and with gusto, with delight and with desire, with an intensity that is fitting for God's worship, to not come and mumble his praises, to not come and whisper his goodness, but to come after a week where we have spent time in the wilderness, to come to the oasis that is God, to be refreshed by Christ once more, to be found as children of God in His delight, in His favor, and to say, thank you, God. Praise you, God. And as we praise the Lord, what we're doing is also, in a horizontal manner, invoking the praise of our fellow brothers and sisters. As we praise God, we invite others into the worship of God that God has invited us into. We sing and make a joyful noise to God. It's, it's an interesting thing. There's a kind of diminishing of life in our day when all of life in many ways is being reduced to the screen and you know, just your phone or your, um, your, your computer, your laptop. What, what is it that we cheer in life? What is it that we sing? Have, do, do you hear much singing going on in this world? It's no coincidence as, that as our world leaves Christ more and more singing as an act, just as a cultural act, is disappearing. We cheer maybe our favorite sports team or an athlete if they do a good move or a good play. Uh, we might sing happy birthday to, you know, our family, our friends. There's not a lot of singing in our day because there's not a lot of recognition in our day that God is God. But what is to characterize those who know God is singing. Singing with gusto and gratitude. Who is God? God is our rock, the rock of our salvation, our savior, our creator, our preserver, our guardian, and our protector. And we are to acknowledge that God is all and that we are nothing.
that we are nothing. And that's why you see God appoints for himself in the forms of the Old Testament, the forms of worship, verse 6, of bowing down, of kneeling before God to declare that we are nothing and that God is all. And yet, we need to see the reality of true religion here, of Old Testament religion, which is just simply New Testament religion given to Israel. The most important thing is not the bowing down or the kneeling or the the Old Testament forms. And there were many ceremonies, there were many rituals that God himself had prescribed, had ordained and given to Israel. No, you see, what God seeks is a heart of worship. What God seeks is that in and through all the God-ordained ceremonies of the Old Testament, the Israelite presenting his heart, bowing not just his knee, but his life and his mind to God, to give to God himself as a sacrifice of praise. Old Testament religion is not ceremony, mere ritual, outward performance. Brothers and sisters, we can neglect and ignore this simple fact that God wants the heart of His people. God wants you. He wants your worship. He doesn't simply want the praise of your lips, but the praise of your heart. Worship that pleases God is worship that is full of joy, full of thanksgiving, that flows not from outward ceremony, but flows from a heart that has been confronted with the living God, confronted, confronted with the goodness of God, confronted with his salvation from our sins. And this is the heart of Old Testament religion. This is the heart of New Testament religion. There are not two religions in the Bible. There are not two ways to God. There are not two works of God among his people. There is one in the same work, the work of God's grace, changing the heart of his people. We'll get to that in a moment. But then who is God that we would worship him? Who is God? Verse three through seven tells us. Verse 3, the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. The greatness of God is beyond compare. The greatness of God is like nothing else. To whom shall you compare me to? God speaks in the oracle of Isaiah. Who, who, who is like God? There, there is nothing on earth who is, that is like God. There, there is no God, small g, G-O-D, That is like God. All the gods of the world are worthless idols. They're dead. They have ears but don't hear, eyes but don't see, mouths but can't speak. And those who worship them become like them. But God, God is the most high king. He is supreme over all. And all things belong to him because he made them all. And here the the, the psalmist gives a, a short litany of God's creative power. The depths of the earth are his. The heights of the mountains are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. 
what Israel confessed, you see, and we were talking about this a few weeks ago, um, amongst themselves they would readily confess that the God they served was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the patriarchs, the God of our forefathers. But to the Gentile, that, that didn't make sense. They didn't know who Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob was. And so there was a phrase that, we, that was used repeatedly, especially later on in Israel's history, in the prophets, book of Psalms, that explains who God is in a short, pithy way. God, our God, the Israelite would say, is the one true living God, the God who made the heavens and the earth. You see, Israel's God was not one God among many. He was God alone. God who with power had created all things out of nothing by the word of his power. God, who with omniscient wisdom created all things and gave them their proper place. God, who with divine sovereignty not only created all things, but rules over all things and maintains all things and preserves his very creation so that it will never be moved. This is the God that Israel served. And this is our God here and now as well. God made the world, the psalmist declares. But not only did God make the world, the psalmist says, verse 7, He is our God. He is our maker. We are the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hands. It's just not that God is the God of creation, but no, he is God, our redeemer, God, our salvation. He formed not just the world, most certainly he did, but he formed us. He formed you, his people, the people of his care, the flock of his hands. And what this means, you see, is that God is not simply interested and involved with all of creation superintending all things that come to pass in his divine providence. But God, you see, is interested in his people. God cares for his people. God extends and exercises tenderness and mercy and compassion and strength for his people. Of course, God provides life for all the living but God, you see, especially cares for his particular heritage. And so that's why the psalmist David can say, because of this, because of all that God is, because of all that God has done as creator and as redeemer, as savior, let us come to worship God. Let us go and kneel and bow down. Because this God is our God. Because this God has loved us. This God has made us and rescued us and sustains us with infinite care and compassion. Let us come to the Lord and let us praise the Lord, the psalmist says. And then there's a turn at the end of the psalm. At the end of verse 7, David says, if this is all true, then what does this mean for you? What implications does it have for your life that God himself calls you to worship him? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, 
as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. There's an urgent call because, because this is true that God is God, our creator and our savior. There is an urgent call to respond to God wholeheartedly, completely, immediately, joyfully from the heart. Today, God says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see how Old Testament religion is about the heart first and foremost. God doesn't say, well, today, if you hear his voice, do this ceremony, complete this form, do this outward externality. And we need to be clear, there, there are still in the New Testament outward externalities. The problem is not ceremony. There, you will have ritual and ceremony no matter what tradition you have. So the issue is not ceremony. The issue is where is your heart? Where is your heart? The psalm begins with a bright call to worship God with joy, with gratitude, with gusto. And now all of a sudden we, we hear that there has been a hardening of the heart against God and there's a certain dark cloud that descends upon the psalm and there is now a dire warning that's issued by God. What happened at Meribah and at Massa? Look over at Exodus chapter 17. <clears throat> Some commentators believe this is, uh, these names are two different names of two different places. Um, as you'll see, there's in the text here in Exodus 17, good uh, warrant to say that they are the same place. Just two names given to the same place because of two similar dispositions from Israel's heart. Notice Exodus 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of Sin or Zin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. So they've just come out of Egypt. God has just parted the Red Sea and they have seen God's mighty hand bring them on dry ground to the other side of the Red Sea. And, and God bringing together the waters of the Red Sea to drown Egypt and all the hosts of Egypt. And we're told that the bodies were washing on the shore of the Egyptian army. They've seen the power of God, but yet what happens? Verse 2, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, taking your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word, the name Meribah means quarreling. And Moses names that place 
quarreling. And then he names the place Massa as well, which means testing. It's the same place, but there are two similar dispositions from Israel's heart against God, neither of which are good. There is quarreling against God and a questioning of God's goodness. Is, is God trustworthy or not? Man, this God sure wants to kill us, right? And if you understand Israel and, and read Exodus and read Numbers as well, you understand that this is in the DNA of Israel, this quarreling spirit. What about this? What about that grumbling, discontentment? And not simply grumbling, but grumbling against God, testing God. Think of the craziness, the insanity here of sin, the, the deceitfulness of sin in the heart of Israel. They had just witnessed God utterly destroy Egypt in the ten plagues. God had heard them as they cried out for 400 years. God heard them, God saw them, and God, we're told in Exodus 2, remembered his covenant. And God came down to save his people, to rescue his people, and to destroy Egypt. And God brings them through the Red Sea on dry land. And God says, I am with you. And I am always going to be with you. And time after time, they have thus far seen and beheld the wondrous works of God. And later on, we're told that they're going to be given manna from heaven. Manna literally means, what is this, right? In a kind of scoffful, scorning way. You know, what is this? And yet God gives them bread from heaven. God gives them water from the rock. God allows their clothes and their sandals to not grow old. And all of this leads Israel to do what? Back to chapter uh, 95 of Psalm, verse 8. It leads Israel not to praise the Lord, not to worship God, but to harden their hearts, to harden their hearts against God, to put God to the test. Verse 10, these are people who go astray in their heart. Do you see what God wants here, what God has always wanted from the beginning and here in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament era is the heart of his people. They hold all of God's works in low esteem, as as little as nothing. What was so familiar to Israel, what was so close, what was so near, the presence of God, the very tabernacle of God, was held as common, as tiresome by Israel. Even here in Exodus 17, at the very beginning of the 40-year wilderness wandering because of their sin, indifference, apathy has set in. They have tested and tried God. Their hearts have hardened. Their hearts have gone astray. And at the end of it all, what does God say? Verse 10, they have not known my ways. A people who should have known God's ways. Here they are, ignorant of God. And you see, this isn't just a word for Israel then and there. This isn't a word for, oh, those are God's ancient people, but you know, it's all grace now in Christ, right? Look at Hebrews chapter 3. We'll just simply take a few verses. We'll have a fuller exposition next week. God says, that was for then and there, but it's for the church 
here and now. Chapter 3 of Hebrews, verse 7, quoting all the end of Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And then notice the same thing that the psalmist says in Psalm 95. The writer to the Hebrews says here, Therefore, take care, my brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The emphasis you see is the same. You, you, there, perhaps some of you struggle, right? You're coming out of Baptist circles. You're coming uh, and you're realizing, you know, okay, there's a lot of continuity here. But what, what is different? Not, not this. The same covenant obligations are given to Israel of old and to the church today. The same covenant obligation to hear God's voice. And to respond in faith. The same covenant obligation. The same covenant temptation. Is found. For Israel and for us. Which is to hear God. To hear God. And to ignore God. To hear him. But not to hear him. And so the question beloved is. How are you hearing God? And when the Bible talks about, when the Bible speaks of hearing, it's not just talking about this little fleshly thing here called an ear. Children, you might know. You might have heard your parents say, are you, are you listening? Are you hearing? Sure, they're asking, are you hearing the words that your mom or your dad are speaking? But they're saying something different. They're saying something beyond that as well. They're, they're saying... Are you hearing with your heart? Are you not only understanding, but are you inclined to obedience? Son, daughter, are you hearing me? Are you, in the older English word, are you heeding me? Are you understanding with your heart and obeying with your heart? So often, beloved, we today can merely hear with our ear. We perhaps were raised in the church. Perhaps we've been in the church for many years. Perhaps we, we know things about God. We know things about Reformed theology. Perhaps you can count and number all the sermons you've heard in your lifetime, right? Sermon after sermon, sermon after sermon. And yet none of that profits you unless you are hearing and heeding, obeying and loving God. Israel saw the wondrous works of God for 40 years. And at the end of it all, eh, eh, God, whatever. They held God in such low esteem. Hebrews 
earlier in chapter two says you have to. Well, we'll get there. We'll get there. What happens to Israel? What's the consequence for Israel? Verse 11, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the way it works in the Christian life. God doesn't bring anyone to heaven who doesn't want to be there. That would be hell for that person. That would be hell. To, to be with God, whom they've scorned their whole life. To be with God's people, whom they've scorned their whole life. No, they have refused to enter God's rest. And so God says, you won't enter. They have refused life in Christ. And so God co-signs their desire. And God shuts them out from eternal life in Christ. You see, this is inevitably what happens when we scorn God, when we refuse God. You see, God alone is light and life. And so to turn away from God in the, in the classical Augustinian sense of the word is to turn away from truth, to turn away from light, to turn away from life, to turn to what? Darkness. To turn to death. They refuse heaven, so God says he will bring them low to hell. How are you listening? How are you hearing and responding to Christ? We'll do more of this work next week. But the Bible emphasizes so many times the importance of not just hearing with your ear. But how are you hearing? How are you hearing? John 10 tells us. Christ Jesus is the good shepherd. He says the, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what do God's people do? They follow me, Jesus says. Look over at Mark chapter 4. <clears throat> Mark chapter 4, verse 13 uh, and 20 through 20 tells us of how Jesus had to explain to the disciples the parable of the sower. It's, it's actually the parable of the four soils. And uh, we're told that the sower goes out to sow and some seed falls on along the path, some seed falls um, in soil that has no depth, some seed falls, it grows, and yet it's scorched by the sun. And there's a final seed that falls on good ground that it produces fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And so the disciples say, well, what are, what are you getting at here, Rabbi? What are, you, what are you getting at here, Lord? And so he says, verse 13, he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word 
But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Those that were sown on good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. You see what Jesus is saying here? It's not a matter of mere listening to the word. What are you doing with the word? How are you hearing? How are you responding to Christ? Are you hearing the word and simply walking away from it? Are you hearing the word and letting the desires of this world and the desires of your flesh choke out that word? Are you hearing the word and and you have no rootedness? And so you have great joy, but then the first trial comes and all of a sudden you question God and his trustworthiness and his goodness. Refusing to hear God's word of grace and promise. Or are we the ones who upon hearing the word receive it, accept it, say yes and amen to it. Lord, have your way in my life. Not my will, but thine will. Not my desire, which is only death and decay and destruction, but have your will fulfilled in my world, in my life, in my will. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You see what the psalmist is getting at. How are you hearing? True religion was and always has been about God seeking worshipers from the heart, hearing Christ, believing Christ, obeying Christ from the heart. And you can't ever outsource your heart. You you can't ever offer to God ceremony in place of your heart. You can't ever say, Lord, I mouth these words. That's good enough, right? You can't ever say, Lord, I, you know, I can check off my Bible reading for today. That's good enough, right? I did what you said, but where is your heart, God says? Where is your heart? Because nothing else will do. Where is your affection? Where is your love? God wants your love. God wants your life. God wants your obedience. God wants you. No formalism, no outward religiosity, no mere external performance. God wants you. And we cannot escape God. God is not like the gods of this world, right? The pagan gods that are so happy with outward virtue signaling. No, we cannot ignore this God. God confronts us face to face at the level of our hearts It is with God that we must deal. People of God, today, this Lord's Day, it is with God that you must deal. our, Our issue is not with this or that. It's with God. Are we going to get squared away with God and live? Or will we refuse God and die? Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word and the gospel threats and the gospel warnings that you issue to us, your people, in order to preserve us, in order to compel us, to, Father, consider our ways 
and where we have strayed, where perhaps our hearts have grown hard, where we have perhaps let a root of bitterness come in, as Hebrew says, where we have indulged, where we have given quarter to our own desire. And Father, we pray that you would forgive us and that you would soften our hearts and create in us the very tenderness of Christ, the heart of Christ. And Father, we would absolutely loathe and hate our sins, but love you, the God of our salvation. And Father, we would never forget you, even as you called, call us to, uh, Father, just a, a multiplicity of duties. And Father, uh, we are called to obey the whole of your law. But that, Father, we would never forget the summary of the law, that in and through all of our duties, we are called, above all, to love you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, with all of our might and mind. Help us, Father, and work in us this gospel reality. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.